Um, we, uh, we being Chris and Brett and I, we talked through worship services and where we're headed and that kind of thing. And, and um, uh, I had a, had a good series. I, I, I will get to part of it, I think. But uh, it's called On Generous Living, you know, going into Thanksgiving. You know, it's a, it's a good word. But then uh, the Lord just kind of seems to, um, uh, I've learned, I've learned, probably when I was younger in the ministry, I wasn't, I would push through. You know, I don't think God, God is against that, but you'd push through instead of just saying, okay, God, what are you saying? And I will, I will step aside and uh, just let you have your way. And, um, and so that's been one of those weeks. The Lord just started really uh, penetrating my heart on some things. And so I, I want you I will allow you all to, um, to join with me. It's a wrestling. You remember when Jacob wrestled with God and uh, we were just kind of let in on that story? Um, we are in on another story. We're wrestling with God on some things. And so I want you to, to join me in that wrestle. And, and, I, and I know uh, I want to ask you to do something, and this isn't always easy because uh, I, I understand fidgety and ADD and that kind of stuff. But if you can remain in here, it would appreciate that and helping me get to the crux of what I think God is really saying today. Uh, you can turn with me to First Kings chapter 18. I'm not going to, I'm not going to read it all. I'm going to kind of uh, relate to it and refer to it, but I'm not going to, to uh, just read the story to you. I want to kind of give you the background of the story. But let me give you a thought as we get into the story of First Kings today. You know, anytime you go to a movie or you read a, a fictional book you, or watch a TV show, even a, a movie on TV, you identify with the character. That's just the way it is. We, we identify with somebody in the movie. If it's, a, if it's an action movie, we identify either with the hero or with the victim who the hero comes to save and rescue and that kind of stuff. And uh, it's the same way when we read a book. We just we identify with certain characters. And, you know, 100% of the time, it's normally we identify with a positive character. We don't identify with a villain. If you've got a kid that's identifying with a villain, get him some counseling. He, he, that's just not the way we're wired. We, we, we want to be the hero. We want to be the, either that or, the, or the, somebody that was wronged and it's been made right. And that's who we want to be. And, and it's the same way when we read Bible stories. You read the story of David and Goliath. Uh, nobody says, oh, I'm Goliath. You know, it's David. I'm, I'm David. Uh, you know, I want to be the, the hero, the conqueror that, that God uses or whatever it may be. And we see that throughout Scripture in the way it is. And I always kind of approach the Scripture that way and saying, you know, God, this is who I am. And then this week, the Lord shifted that on me. And First uh, Kings chapter 18 is part of the shift. So let me give you the background of the story and then where I believe God has a word for not just central. I think it's a word for central, but I, I think it's just a word for his church today. In 1 Kings chapter 18, let me give you a little bit of the history. Ahab was king of Judah, King Ahab. King Ahab was not uh, the top of the list of character or morals. He married a woman by the name of Jezebel. Jezebel had introduced to him pagan deities, uh, namely two pagan deities called Baal and Asherah. These, are, uh, these were fertility gods. In other words, the worship of them, they would, we would pray to these gods hoping that they would have grain and fruitfulness and all this kind of stuff. But literally, it was a sensual, pagan, pleasure-seeking type of worship. 
with the, with the worship of the Baals and Asherahs. It was very sensual in its nature and the way it, 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 it people were used in, in the midst of that, the cult practices that were there. And, uh, and this, is the, this is what was introduced to Ahab, who was supposed to be leading God's people to righteous living, but, but he let Jezebel influence him, and you know how it is. Ahab just took off. Sounds very, it sounds very much like today, to be honest with you. I, I know we say, man, Mark, there's no Baals, there's no Asherah. Let me tell you, we worship sensuality and pleasure in our nation. These are gods that we worship. And uh, it was this, it, this is the way it was. So Elijah was the prophet who was the thorn in the side of Ahab because he was always bringing back to God's holiness and God's righteousness. And he was constantly bringing back there. And uh, Ahab had had enough of Elijah and he wanted to get rid of him if possible. But Elijah was was pretty, pretty much able to go everywhere. And there was a prophet by the name of Obadiah. And uh, Ahab told Obadiah to go find Elijah and so what he did is he actually found Elijah, and, and Elijah said, you go tell Ahab I'm here and bring him to me. And uh, Obadiah said, oh, no, because I, as soon as you do, as soon as I go, you're going to leave, and I'm going to go get him, and you're not going to be here. And Elijah said, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be here. You just go get him. So what happens is, is that uh, Obadiah goes and gets Ahab, and Ahab comes to Elijah. And that's where you pick it up in part of verse 18, and uh, what happens is, is that Elijah tells Ahab, said, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go get the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, and I want you to bring them to Mount Carmel. And we're going to have basically uh, um, a discussion, right? No, I mean, they're going to have a confrontation there on Mount Carmel. So Ahab, you go get these 450 prophets of Baal. You go get these 400 prophets of Asherah. Bring them together. So it's 850 prophets of these these pagan deities that you're going to bring to Mount Carmel. Okay, and what what? So go and get them and bring them. And so what happens is, as the day arrives, here comes these 850 pagan prophets up here with uh, Elijah, the prophet of God. But not only that, all the people came. I'm telling you, the mountain had to be just full of masses of people knowing that this is about, the showdown is about to happen. And so this is what Elijah says um, to Ahab. He said, you have abandoned the command. This is in verse 18. You have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, gather all these prophets and let's gather together. And then in verse 21, it says this. It says, and Elijah came near to all the people. See, all the people are there. And he says this. How long, this is the ESV version. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, then follow him. Your, your version of the scripture, NIV, may say, how long are you going to waver between two opinions? In other words, you want to have one foot in, in the God of creation, but you want another foot in all this pleasure seeking that you're doing. And so how long are you going to waver? It's time for you to make a decision. You cannot live in middle ground. James said this, he said, the double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. You have to make a decision. And so Elijah is confronting the people. And, and I like the word limping because that's, it is, is a handicap. You, which one are you going to choose? Today you're going to choose one or the other, and you need to choose. Man, this describes so much the church today. 
We won't, we don't want to go to hell, so we got one foot with God, but the world is so pleasurable, we have a whole foot in that. And we've lost our effectiveness. And I think God is saying, how long are you going to waver between two opinions? When are you going to make a decision? Make one. Make one. And so he has confronted the people, and then he comes to the prophets, and this is what he says. He says, listen, we are going to have uh, a time of sacrifice, okay? He says, you prophets, you get an oxen, and you, um, you cut it up, you do what it takes, and then I'll do the same thing. But this is what he says in verse 24. And he says, and you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. The one who answers by fire, okay? That is the result. The fire of God, that's what they're after. So the prophets of Baal take their oxen, all 850 of them, and many of the people, most of the people had probably embraced that kind of belief system. And so they come together and they prepare the oxen. And they take the oxen, prepare it, and then they start, uh, they start praying. They start calling out to their God. And they start calling out. And they get very zealous. And they get very uh, demonstrative. They, they're exciting. They're committed. And all morning long, they're crying out to God, believing that this is going to happen. And, and nothing happens. Elijah begins to taunt them. He begins to uh, say things like, hey, maybe your God has gone on a trip, on a journey. Many of the prophets, I mean, the, the commentaries will say, the original Hebrew language, language would say, maybe he's relieving himself. And, uh, and so Elijah is taunting. And so what do they do? They get even more committed. And they get even more excited and more zealous about what they're doing. And they're just crying out and they're doing all of these things. Uh, hopefully that the fire from heaven will come and they're crying out. And then this is what it says. Look at verse 29. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation or the evening offering. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Hear that one more time. There was no voice. No one answered, no one paid attention, and it goes without saying there was no fire. Let me stop there a minute. I told you we always identify with somebody in a story. The Lord really convicted my heart that the church has become more like the prophets of Baal than like Elijah. We've got the numbers. I mean, they, they had the numbers, man. And they had the organization. They could do it together. They could organize. And they were committed. They were believing in what they, what was going on. And they, they were zealous and they were overboard about what they were doing and the calling out and, and this kind of thing. And this is the way they were. I mean, it's the kind of church everybody wants to be a part of. It's fast growing. There's tons of people there. And look how committed and organized it is. And look at the commitment they have. And look how zealous they are. And look how excitable everything is. But the question is, is there any fire? That's the question. And it says that there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Did you know people 
are not paying any attention to our God right now. And we can say, well, there's many reasons. Maybe it's because of the the devil and what he does. Listen, we're in a fallen planet. I understand all that. But let me tell you, where the fire is, there is a tension. And it says there was no voice. No one paid attention. No one cared. No one cared. Then Elijah comes on the scene. And it says that Elijah called for the people to come near to him. He called them to come near. And it says the first thing he did was he repaired the altar that was already there. Apparently there was a, a, an old worship altar or something there on Mount Carmel. And he rebuilt, re, redid the altar. You know, that leads me to believe that maybe true worship had been uh, neglected. And he brought it back. He rebuilt the altar. And then, then we'll see that, uh, that as he rebuilt this altar, he took the stones... And it says in verse 32, look at it. He built an altar in the name of the Lord. Let me tell you what I believe Elijah, about Elijah that it's saying here. I believe, first of all, he re- rebuilt the altar according to God's instructions in the Scriptures. He rebuilt the altar and he did it not for the glory of man, but he did it all in the name of the Lord. And that's the first thing Elijah did. He did it in the name of the Lord. He built it into the Lord's name. He built it according to God's word. He repaired those things that had gotten out of order. And I I wonder if if we haven't gotten things out of order. And God is saying, come back to worship me. And Elijah restored the altar that was there. And then the next thing he did is, is, you've got to understand, they were in the middle of a drought and what he did is he, as he rebuilt the altar, he took the sacrifice of this oxen, it was put on the altar, and then he built a trench around the altar, and he took water. He said, take water and pour it on there. I mean, he believed, he, he was willing to sacrifice good water to see this happen. So he pours the water on the altar is what he does. And then he prays. And I want you to see the prayer that, that he humbly lifts before the Lord. Look at verse 36. It says, at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and he said, this is his prayer, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. In other words, God, it is all to your glory. In other words, at the, at the end of this, they're not going to say how great Elijah was. They're going to say how great is God. And that is what he is laying out here. This is his humble prayer. God, come, do what only you can do because your people have turned away. Bring them back to you. And he humbly makes that prayer. So he's prepared the altar. He has prayed unto God. And this is what happened. The fire of God fell. 
And, and, and you know what's interesting is when the fire of God fell, then the people fell. In other words, when God showed up, the people knew it and they paid attention. Where's the fire today? I mean, we can get the numbers and we can market and we can advertise and we can entertain and we can uh, move your hearts with some uh, compassionate stuff. But let me tell you, the only thing that will last is the fire of God. The only thing that will change a life is the fire of God. Of God, We wonder about last Sunday what took place at, at, at Sutherland Springs and our hearts grieve and they break over that. Let me tell you, we, we need the fire of God. We, we look at a, a group that's coming along that's called the millennials or, or I, I don't want to label people, but this generation that's coming along, they say that are abandoning the church, that, that they're walking away from the church. So let's, let's wring our hands. How are we going to bring the millennials back? How are we going to bring them back? What, what kind of advertising can we do? What kind of marketing to do that we can do? I tell you, we need the fire of God. That's what we need. People pay attention where the fire of God is. Marriages are falling apart. Families are fracturing. We're thinking, oh man, we, we need more things on marriage. And I'm not opposed to teaching on marriage and what we need to strengthen marriage. But we need the fire of God. We, we, need, we need to see the fire of God in such a way that people are transformed. And I, I know the question is, well, Mark, what is the fire of God? I mean, really, what is that you're talking about? It, it's interesting that when we look at the Scriptures that it says that God is a consuming fire. In other words, there's, there's something about Him that's holy and that he, he, he is all-consuming. But, but I think it, it's three things as I look at the, at the fire of God. I think, number one, it's His presence. It's His presence. Just knowing that God is there. You remember in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, a letter that Paul wrote to the first century church there in Corinth, they were having problems in their worship. You know, they were having problems and, and it was dis, dysfunctional in their worship. Someone would have an ecstatic utterance over here and it would be confusing to somebody else. And, and they began to talk about the words of prophecy, though, words for building up and edifying and encouraging and using these words. And it says this, it says that if someone comes into your midst and they're not a follower, not a believer, but they hear you edifying, encouraging and lifting up one another and there's this love that is proclaimed and they understand it well what's taking place it says that they're going to walk out and they're going to say god was there how many times do you hear people walk away from here saying god was there that was a good word or man our teacher really hit the nail on the head man our kids had a great time today the worship man brett they hit a home run student ministry was really rocking today i mean everything was just really going good and, and listen, that that does good to us in a fleshly realm because it tickles ears. But when was the last time you walked out and said, God was there? So it's his presence. But second of all, I think I think there's a 
It's his passion. It's his passion for his people and his people passionately back in love with him. We, we seem to forget that we are, we are depraved. We seem to forget that we are broken and we needed a savior and God loved us so much that he sent Jesus. For some reason we just neglect, we think we weren't that bad. We were doomed. And God, in His passionate mercy and love, came for us. And, and, and we, in return, ought to be passionately ablaze for Him back. But let's be honest. Mark, somebody may think I'm kind of out of it if I, if I get too excited about my faith. And we've talked about that before. So it's His presence. It's passion. But... Thirdly, I think it's his purity. You know, there's a, uh, there's a, when fire comes, there's a refining in that fire. I mean, we know that, that in, in, in forest, there is need of natural fire to burn out the undergrowth, to, to burn out, and, and there's certain pine needles that will not release unless they, unless they have fire, the heat to, to open it up. And so, God even shows in nature the purpose of fire. So we see spiritually it's a need of a purification that comes and that we're not putting a foot in the world and a foot in the church and saying, oh, look at me. I mean, we're, 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 look at the way we are. Listen, it just doesn't work that way. God is saying, abandon yourself to me. Come to me. And we think, oh, Mark, he's, he's going he's gonna to turn me into a weirdo or he's going to send me to the other side of the world or whatever he may do. You know what he may do? He may fill you with his presence so that you love your wife or husband like you've never loved them before. You may love your kids like you've never loved them before. You may love your neighbors like you've never loved them before. That is just terrible, isn't it? What is the results? Are we going to say no voice, no answer, no one paid attention, no fire? We can keep going. We can keep going. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's a good thing here. I love the church. I, I, I love, you know, I jokingly say I was going nine months before I was born. I mean, I've had a chance to grow up in the church. And, and, but I want the fire of God. I'm just being honest. I, I, I see people walking away from their faith, and 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 I and I question what was it real in the beginning, and 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 you know I don't know, but I do know that where the fire of God is, people pay attention. Not how good Central is, not how good the Church of Round Rock is, or anything. I mean, how good is God? saw a story about a small town. And there was an atheist in this small town who created all kinds of struggle for the church. You know, he was very verbal, very abusive towards the church. And, and uh, that's just the way he was. Well, one particular day, the church structure actually did catch on fire. And uh, he ran down to the church where it was at. And uh, one of the parishioners said to him, he said, that's the first time I've ever seen you run to church. 
And he said, that's the first time I've ever seen this church on fire. Where there's a fire, people come. Now, I know somebody's going to say to me, Mark, you're being a little hard on us. I mean, there's a little pockets of fire here and there and there. You know what I've seen about fires is it's noticeable. It comes together. God, bring your fire together. I just want to see God do what only He can do. Let's pray.